Hey, welcome! Thanks for tuning in! This is There's Something About Artbeats, a podcast where I discuss with experts and industry leaders about the many sides of the artbeats industry. I'm your host, Federico Biancullo. I am an artbeats artist, founder of The Big Picture, blogger and content creator in the field of architectural representation. I'm on a journey to learn more on all things about artbeats, art direction, business, technology, you name it. And I would like you to be a part of this journey as well. Through these conversations, my hope is to bring light to not so obvious topics connected to our industry and help you grow as a professional, as an artist, and why not, as a human being as well. So please join me. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of There's Something About Artbeats. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 12 of There's Something About Arquis. This episode is pretty special for a couple of reasons. First of all, at the moment of releasing this episode, we have just entered November 2021. And that means exactly one year ago, I was publishing the very first episode of this series. You see, I came up with the idea for the podcast during the second lockdown in Italy. It was a moment where I really needed to reconnect with people in our field, get a clearer picture of the industry or how it works, and also a clearer picture of where I was going as an artist professional. I've learned so much through the words of our guests, and I really hope you did too. The lockdown situation is now much better, at least over here in Italy, but the purpose of this podcast definitely hasn't changed, and I'm still very much interested in covering not-so-obvious topics connected to our industry. Now, this episode also marks the end of season one of There's Something About Arby's. The podcast will be returning with new episodes and great guests around the end of January, beginning of February 2022, but I'm planning a special episode for December, something related to the topic I brought on the virtual stage of the D2 conferences 2021. But anyway, let's go back to today's episode. One of the things we tend to forget the most is that Arcvis is a service industry, and managing people, whether it's clients or teams, it's a pretty important part of what we do. At the core of this, there's always, always smooth communication. But how should we manage the expectations of our clients and how do we build the positive dynamics with internal and external teams? I've asked these questions and much more to Anna Perella. She's a chartered architect and head of planning at Cityscape Digital in London. Her role at Cityscape Digital has many facets, as not only she coordinates internal production teams, mentors people, and maintains standard working practices, but she also liaises with clients, designers, and help solving issues that may surface during these collaborations. In this episode, we go through her background and the self-reflection process that led her to embrace the managing side of our industry, and we also talk about what is it like to be a head of planning. We also discuss architectural competitions opposed to real estate projects, how smaller teams could implement sustainable practices for growth, uh, management, and much more. It's a very interesting and insight-packed episode, so sit back, relax, grab a cup of coffee, or tea and enjoy my conversation with Anna. I saw your talk at the State of Art Days, so I was really interested into this aspect of Arctis. You know, nobody ever talks about how to manage a project. Everything is very focused on the artistic side, on how to achieve a good image. And I think the managing side and leading teams aspect of this job is not covered enough in our industry. It is a multifaceted industry. So there's plenty of space for Anna to be an artist. There's plenty of space for someone to be more technical or someone to focus on the bigger picture. So all the skills are welcome. 
So it boils down to who, what everyone's specific skill set is. And I found that I'm definitely a stronger, <laughs> a stronger at management than I was as being an artist. So let's work with our strengths. Yeah, right. Uh, you've been an artist as well, right? Yeah, I have been. I was working as an artist from early years of uni, really. I, I was working from 2005 since 2018, 19. So it, it was a, a strong session of... 14 plus years of being an artist, so I just took a leap. Right, so you are a veteran artist anyway. You come from a background of yeah, a veteran artist. I, yes. I come from a background of uh, a Photoshop uh, 2007 or um, AutoCAD 2000 LT or 3DS Max. I don't remember the version. So yeah, you can you can call me a dinosaur, it's fine. <laughs> no, no, I won't, I won't. It's good to talk to veterans. Then you have an overview, like a bird's eye view on how the industry has evolved and still evolving mm -hmm. probably. Uh, I can really, yeah. I can really see ourselves, for example, I, I'm just going to say something that is maybe banal, but everything says that real time is going to blow away the way we work right now. And I, I believe it's true. I've been seeing what, Chaos Group's been up to with the with Project Chaos Vantage, and I think that's going to be the direction. I think that's interesting to talk about this as well in a, in the managing aspect, especially with clients. What's going to happen when clients get to know that this is a possibility as well? I think that they don't care about uh, timings to begin with, so it's not going to change what people need at the end of the day. I know that there is a very common thing in, in our industry. So many people say, oh, architects are doing that. Oh, the client is doing that. At the end of the day, everyone has a different agenda and everyone is trying to get the point across or the view, the vision across or like their message across. Clients have a very specific budget they're working towards or a specific deadline they're working towards. So realistically, uh, we're all working on the same game. We just have a kind of different aspects. Um, I remember Roberto from State of Art saying that a visa artist only needs two things, make it happen and make it look good. So realistically, if it happens, if things happen easier, then we might need to change a way we communicate things and change a way of working with people. So it could lead to a more collaborative process. Uh, there's always room for art. There's always room for stunning visuals. There, there's always room for exploration of what it means to create a new, a, a good visual. I can see that there are different kinds of images we are producing. So the more descriptive images, the images that we're doing just because they want to see how a building looks or how this facade looks or how things are articulated, then it might save us time from the mundane and we can focus on the cool things. So I want to be optimistic about that. I really like what you just said about the fact that we are on the same team. I like to meet clients by giving a small presentation on how visualization companies work. And the end part of the presentation is letting them understand that we are all on the same page. We are all on the same team. We should all row in the same direction. So that's that's funny. I, I really agree with that. But let's have a step back and let's start talking about you, about your career, about your path, about how you became interested in project management, the steps that led you to become a project manager in the first place. I'm an architect. I have been an architect for 11 years. I have been working on ArcBase many more. I have touched base in working as an architecture photographer. So since I was in uni, I really was drawn to that part of things like the visualization, the more techie side of things because I couldn't draw. So I wanted to find something that I'm, I'm good at so that I can communicate my ideas because my sketches were non-comparable to the amazing talents I had in my uni and I just want to make sure that I get a bit of, a, of an advance somewhere. 
I attended the State of Art Academy in 2013. Um, I studied there, I think it was Masterclass 6 or 7, and now it's double digits and I feel really like, feels like forever. And I moved to London in 2015 because I am from Greece. So crisis hit and I was graduating uni when the crisis was really up and coming like it was there it was visible but actually after trying for five years to make it and like make things work I decided that I wanted to just see what I can do abroad so I moved to London uh at first I started working at Squint Opera as a visualization artist I made the choice to work as a visualization artist instead of an architect because I thought it would be easier for me back then to find a um, career and like make it work i had no exposure in um, in any anything of the process of uh, architecture in in london so i thought that at least visualization has a very similar language in any any place you are so i wouldn't be running behind other people i wouldn't be falling short so i joined squint opera i met a fantastic team there we worked for 3 years together and then i moved to cityscape at Squint Opera, I had started already um, being the VIS lead on some big projects of steels, um, liaising with external teams, leading teams of um, a variety of artists and make a big batches of images and make things work. So it kind of came a bit natural to me. I'm a very structured, very organized person. I, I am a very deadline-focused person or trying to find out a, a solution when things don't go as planned. So... Realistically, it came very naturally. And when I moved to Cityscape in 2018 as a senior visa artist, then it kind of became obvious. Um, They had a very different way of dealing with clients. They gave artists that wanted to test the waters, just run their projects in a sense. So I kind of did that and I was good at it. And I was really good at diffusing problems. Um, when the opportunity for me came to just work on a different aspect of the job, which is not the marketing side, the, what we call illustrative, like the glossy visuals. And I, I moved on to working on the planning material. So what in London is called a verified view, which is more structured, more process-based, based on photography, which I have a passion for. So I moved on doing more and more of this side of things. And slowly I I became the head of visualization for planning and then the head of planning production, which means that I took on a team of visualizers and technical technicians, um, people that are doing camera matches, modeling, positioning things in real space. And now I'm leading my own team. So I'm head of planning at Cityscape. Uh, we are 18 people strong. We have a variety of people. That's what I find really fascinating. So we have six technicians. We have seven really talented AVR, three artists. We have one photographer and freelance photographers we work with. We have art workers that do our documents. Uh, we have two department heads because we, we are many. So we needed to split things into departments, the technical and the visual department a coordinator of everything that's happening in the technical team and we're having a producer that's helping us um, coordinate in the bigger scheme of things uh, as um, as a project manager would. So realistically, we are growing and growing and I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm really excited to see. And yeah, I think it kind of uh, organically evolved and I don't know, I'm not a person that attributes things to luck. It was just a, a good timing when things happened, I guess. 
So there was a need in the team and I was deemed I would be the best person to do the job. And I gradually realized that it would be a very good opportunity for me too, because it felt very natural. It felt very like a second nature to me. So circumstances aligned and it worked for us, I guess. You basically answered the question that popped up in my mind when you told me your story. So all this process of becoming a a leader, a manager, happened gradually and very organically. What about shifting from the art part to the managing part? I can see many artists having a bit of, you know, a bit of reflection time if they were to make such a shift. What about you? Was it that for you as well? Or was it like really, really happy going diving into this managing part for you what happened with me was a, a bit like i had a bit of a self-reflection when i moved um companies and uh, things so essentially what happened is i realized that you know i had been in london almost three three and a half years i had been working with extremely talented people like you could see um fantastic work going out so the bar was really high and i was always i I don't want to put myself down i was always a a very reliable artist but according to my skill set i couldn't see myself becoming like what would the next step be i was thinking what am i gonna do i'm a senior artist at 30 what does it mean is that the peak is that where i'm gonna get to so i was trying to figure out what my next career step would be and I instinctively knew that I was not um, an art director material. I'm not putting myself down here. It's literally about a matter of skill set and what I'm drawn to. I was never drawn to that either way. It's not whether I would be good at it or not. It would take me significantly more effort to just be a good art director or a decent one. So I was trying to figure out what the what other opportunities I had uh, to just grow because I didn't want to think that I had picked at that point because there there were so many more things to learn. And then I had this, um, it's almost a phobia, but actually it's a a telltale sign of how things are evolving in our industry. I was thinking that if I don't evolve, you have so many extremely talented people that are now, now in their early 20s and they're doing fantastic things and they're more software savvy and they have more time to do these things and they... They just spend endless nights just fiddling with software and learning new things and everything that's new and exciting and shiny. And I was not there anymore. I was not doing that anymore. I wasn't feeling like that anymore. So I could not invest time to re-educate myself in that way because I would feel that I would fall behind. So realistically, thinking of these things, I saw the opportunity to just move on a different aspect, um, which is a very London-specific one, but actually the skill set acquired is a transferable skill set. And it was something I was naturally drawn to. So it kind of fell in place. There were the inner workings and second-guessing myself and trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. But at the end of the day, when the opportunity came, it kind of felt very natural. And I think that I have been lucky on that aspect because it could not have happened. And I don't know what I would be doing if that was the case. Probably trying to figure out what the next forest path is doing. (laughs) I think London is the right place to nurture such a career. And I think it's also a matter of wisdom of the age. You know, I can understand when you get to a certain age, when you get in your 30s, 
especially in an industry like ours, which is really fast paced, it becomes really difficult to keep up the pace with image making, with the artistic development. I don't know. It's something that I start thinking myself as well. I'm 33, by the way, and more or less, I'm in a similar situation. I'm in a situation in which I want to move more towards the managing, you know, coordinating rather than making the image myself, but so I can relate to your narration. And since our industry is relatively young, it's not that young anymore, but still, uh, there are so many different companies that work in so different ways. I think there's still room to grow for, you know, key figures and job positions that are a bit off the artist or senior artist or art director. So I think it is worth to explore. I, I think it's also worth to tell the listeners, what is your role? What do you do in your company? So to let them understand what's possible in a larger company. As I said, Alida, I lead a multifaceted team. Um, what we do in the planning side of things is make sure that we provide collateral for anything that's planning related in London. Anything that allows a building to go through a successful planning submission. Um, the UK and especially London are very, very specific on that. So there's very significant restrictions. And that means that we need to work towards a very a clear methodology in order to produce what we are producing. So it could be material that supports early discussions between architects and clients or material that the clients actually will, will take to understand whether they want to even purchase the land they're interested in. Um, and it could be technical essays. It could be some reports. It uh, could be um, what we call verified views, which is shooting from a specific viewpoint in the city, looking at heritage assets or townscape assets, assets that are critical for the planners to to see how the building would fit in. And realistically, what we do is we produce images that are accurate to 50 millimeter tolerance, and they're an accurate representation of how the scheme would look if it was built on that specific day, with that specific light, with that specific context. It's essentially building a, a virtual city, as I want to say. So having um, a fusion between real life photography and virtual worlds and a digital context model of large areas of London or outside London and working with that so that you can inform people of how their proposal is looking like. So we are working really closely with architects to understand their design intent, the materiality of the scheme, what they want to say with the images, but we can't curate the images in the same way as a marketing or an artistic image would because we have very specific restraints. But at the end of the day, what we are producing is high quality visual material that aids people to make decisions on uh, submissions of uh, potential buildings in the UK. And my day to day, let's say that it's um, a very fluctuating thing. So what we are working towards is we, we have recently expanded and reinforced our team. So I'm not in production. I haven't been in production for more than a year. Um, I'm making sure that the team is up to speed with what they need to do, liaising with external teams to make sure that everything that has been allocated is fair and square, um, talking to the project managers to ensure that we are not missing anything or the team has enough information to proceed with things, liaising with um, planning consultants or townscape consultants, consultants of any kind of or clients, that have any inquiries for us, uh, engaging in landing new business. So any inquiries for upcoming projects that are planning related, uh, I will be doing the scoping and quoting and talking to the teams to understand what they need. 
participating in meetings, whether they are meetings with the architects and the clients or whether they're more expanded meetings. We are essentially an extended part of the, of the design team at some points, especially on big schemes, just because they, what we are producing is very informative on their building. So if for some reason we are looking at a view that's very critical and the building is, looking, is not looking comfortable in that view, then they will need to go back to the drawing board and redesign things because it will never go through planning if that view goes out. So it's a, a very back and forth thing, a rather complicated job, but it's never the same. No day is the same. I was trying to think what my day looks like, but I'm looking at my calendar and it's looking like crazy. <laughs> so I don't know. It, it looks very hectic. And if I were to, well, I think it doesn't render justice to what you do, but if I were to define what you do is filtering information between the external teams, the architects, and the team of, at Cityscape in this case? It's more informing. Okay. So the producer role is filtering the information. I, I assist people make informed decisions, and I participate in the decision-making at some level. In the meantime, we, we are expanding our team, so we're making um, interviews and yearly reviews of the staff and making sure that people are challenged and making sure that I tend to the team, their inductions, um, meetings like business development meetings with external teams. So yeah, it's a, it's a full-on thing, really. Well, hearing all of these aspects makes me wonder, what do you like the most of your job and what do you find the most frustrating, the most challenging aspects of what you do? What I like the most is like really easy to reply to. When I first started on the role, the team was almost half as big. So... Looking back and reflecting back and seeing how much we've grown and how much the team has advanced, how much people that I interviewed and now they're smashing it and performing really well, that gives me an instant satisfaction because at the end of the day, you can be, um, you can be good at what you do, but for me, it's important to make sure that I'm not advancing alone. So having a team that I see is evolving, I see is being challenged, I see they're progressing, it's extremely satisfying to me because it relates back to what, what's important to me. And for me, making sure that we are all like walking towards the same goal is critical. And I know that a team that's not happy is not a team that's going to last for long. So I just want to make sure like not from a retaining a kind of scenario, like a very business side of things. I can, I can be rather emotional. So I really like working with them and seeing them grow. Um, the most challenging thing is curveballs on a day-to-day -day basis, like things that we cannot foresee and are happening and people are needing things for a specific deadline. And we need to understand the priorities. We need to understand what can be feasible without killing the team in the process. Um, we need to manage expectations and make some not very pleasant discussions. This is something that I could live with less of, but it has its own challenge, to be honest. It's very uh, fulfilling to see that at the end of the day, even though it, like at around 10 o'clock in the morning, everything was looking like it's falling apart. By the end of the day, everything's fine. So it kind of is this thing. The challenge is essentially what challenge can come from external teams. but we do understand that they have their own deadlines and they're working the same way as we do. So what I found really useful for me 
especially working with architects, is that because I have worked as an architect and I know how things look, I know how things work, I know how protective they can be of their design because I see their design for two months, but they have been working on it for two years. So there's a justification behind their decisions of design and they have been working relentlessly. Uh, Architects are one of the most hardworking professions and they're not being paid for the amount of work they put in. I kind of think I have a bit of empathy on understanding why things are a specific way. And I instinctively, I just want to find a, a way to make things work, really. I avoid trying pointing fingers because it's not useful at the end of the day. Even if we're right and like the architects or the client or someone else external did everything wrong, at the end of the day, you need to figure out, okay, it doesn't matter who's wrong or who's right. Let's see what we can do to make sure that their deadline is not completely blown out of proportion. And this is also an occasion for self-reflection as well internally with the team. Even if the architect has screwed up on a project, there's something still to be learned from that experience and to bring in future projects, I guess. But it seems like you're a very empathetic person that you care a lot about your team and your people in the office. So that how... How a good team is nurtured? Uh, The first thing you need to actually do is make sure you have the right people for the job. So make sure that what the people you hire are the people that align with your work ethics and how you think. It doesn't mean that they have to think the same way or they need to come from a certain background because there's there's something great happening when people are different and I'm all for it. But it's more about making sure that they they are hardworking, they know how to work with teams, they understand the bigger picture, they are not divas, <laughs> in a sense. There's always a room for a diva, but yeah, it, it's useful when you don't have it on a, uh, on a team that needs to work really closely together. I think that at the end of the day, anything else can be taught. And if someone is smart, understanding, has a, a certain amount of... Um, perception and needs to grow and needs to learn and wants to pursue more, everything else can be taught. We were having um, interviews for positions in our team on uh, on some aspects of the team and we, we bumped for a junior and we bumped into a CV for, for someone that um, was not located in the UK. They have a right to work in the UK, but they're not located here. And When there was um, a concern on whether do we want to interview him or not, at the end of the day, I said, yes, because someone gave me that opportunity. So when I joined London, I came to London with a contract from someone that had never seen me in person. And I try to remember that someone gave me that opportunity. Now that I'm in a position to do the same, I need not to forget that. I, I don't believe in karma and good deeds, but... It's only fair, and I try to be fair. That's a beautiful thought. If I were in the position of that guy or girl that sent the CV, I would really appreciate the thought, honestly. Especially in times like this, in which the barriers, especially, well, in the UK right now, the barriers for expats are getting raised. I think it's it's a great thing to do. But let's shift to the client side. That's what you also do. You know, client communication is another big thing in our industry. Many, many people in our industry... I think they don't have the basis of proper client communication. I think they struggle with that. Let's talk about that. What's the most crucial things? What are the most crucial aspects in communicating with a client? The most crucial aspect is managing expectations. So making sure that when you talk to them, they understand what the, what the rules are and then what the aim is. When we say managing expectations is 
could be as easily described as you're going to get XYZ with uh, X amount of round of comments and then every additional model will be additional days and additional fee. Um, it could be when you talk to architects, understanding that if the model is prone to change, we're not going to work on it unless it unless it's locked. Otherwise, we are wasting budget of our client. It's a clarity of what we are doing. So what our final product is. Sometimes people assume that because they appoint someone as a visualizer, they have unlimited amount of uh, revisions, but this is not the case. Because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to tell people is you can get more iterations, but you will get them in the same time, which means that you are only jeopardizing our end result. You're only jeopardizing the final product. So if you trust us to do the product as we've shown you in our portfolio, you can trust us to the process. And then we talk to them, we talk them through the process. What is expected in every round of comments? What can be assigned? What can be addressed? What cannot be addressed? What, subs what constitutes additional fee? I'm always aiming to have review sessions in person or in meetings so that you can push back, not in a disrespectful way, but actually explain why things are the, the way they are. And it's always demotivating to the team when they receive a markup with um, 5,000 red circles and they just feel like nothing they're doing is worth. So it's, it's more about making sure that we align and they understand that we want to assist them. We're not trying to be artists for the sake of artistry. We are trying to communicate their message of the project in the best possible scenario. When that happens, I think it's easier um, to actually diffuse tension further down the line. So the other day we were having a review session with a great architectural practice and they were not too persuaded by our visuals. And then we explained the process. We explained why things work a specific way. We explained what we can do for the next stage, but we actually said, this is the first time you see the images. This was not the purpose of the images you would be looking at. It's literally, we would be looking at other things and you are nitpicking on things that we will be addressing on the next iteration. So as long as they know that you are listening, it's much easier. I am an architect and I am chartered in the UK and it always helps because they see it in my signature and they understand that they're talking to someone I hate the word on the level, but they are talking to someone that understands where they're coming from. So this is useful with architects and with clients, it's more about understanding what they want to achieve, what is the bigger picture. Like if sometimes they are changing the design on a last minute, it could be because it's um, financially unviable otherwise. So even if you push back and say, I don't want to do that design change, if you don't cooperate and just find the middle ground, then it won't get built. Like your client has wasted a, a significant amount of budget along multiple practices for nothing. So you kind of need to remember that there is a bigger picture. Try to make sure that you know what the bigger picture is, what the purpose of some decisions is, and have a clarity of the brief from externals and a clarity of your deliverables internally. I think this is the gist of it really, of how things work. and how we have found things to work best. We we come into a few people that can be more nitpicky or can be, I think it's about control really. And I can understand someone that needs to control the process, but as they work with us, they gradually understand that they need to let go of that control because at the end of the day, we're going to assist them 
into having one less worry on their heads. One, one less thing to worry that about. That should be a role. They should worry less about nitpicking on the image because this should be a task of the, of the visualizing company. I mean, we are paid to do that. We're not paid to get micromanaged on an image. It's kind of a paradox if you think about it. Clients that micromanage images, they do the work that we should do that, that we are paid for. <laughs> so they, they do double work on that. But I think it all comes down to communication. And just out of curiosity, how do you explain to your clients your initial process, how the process is going to go down the line? Uh, written documents? Yeah, we have a written down script, really. And we communicate that script to them in our initial email that lays out the draft program. We have split the kind of deliveries. We are doing three deliveries, essentially two rounds of drafts and one final. And then we explain what each delivery means. On the same email, we have a program that says, this is when we are delivering things. This is what you will be looking at in this delivery. This is when we need feedback by. If you don't feel comfortable in making sure that you can provide feedback by that date, like in three days time, midday, uh, you will need to let us know now so that we can reshuffle resources. Otherwise, any delay in feedback will delay our production. As long as these things are clear, you will be surprised uh, by how much easier it is for people to actually follow through. I think that the vagueness is what makes them think you don't control it, so they need to control it. Right. Uh, I was thinking, I work in a lot of competitions. So do you think that it is possible to create a structure for competition workflow? Competitions are a whole new thing. So back in the day, I used to um, work a lot in competitions as an architect that did the visualizing for our proposals, which was a nightmare. Competitions are a very personal thing, I would say. So what happens with competitions is that you have teams that are investing their own budget because there's no client, their own time, just for the sake of fame. It's a roll of a dice whether you're going to get it or not. Of course, it's a different thing if you are doing visuals for competitions for a star architect and a different thing if you're doing visuals for competitions for a local architect or a local, local competition. But it is a more touchy thing. It can be very personal. The deadlines are hectic. People are working till they die. Like they're working extremely hard. The models start changing all the time. So the only thing I would say about competitions regarding a script is sign off what you want the image to convey. Sign off your vision. That vision does not necessarily have to depict the latest building. It just has to be stunning. It just has to tell a story. It doesn't matter if the model changed five times since. No one is going to notice if the image is good. Focus on your story. Focus on what you want to convey. And then try to have a few of the images. If some images are affected by the design change, for instance, try to have a few of the images that you will be happy to say, I'm fine with it as it stands. I'm going to focus my attention on other things. And do everything, everything you can in post. Because competitions are not sustainable if you have to render things. We are reconnecting to what we told at the beginning of this session, that maybe, perhaps, real-time is going to make it easier as well to work full 3D even for competitions. We don't know yet, but probably that's the direction we are going towards on a technical aspect. Yeah, it is, as you said, everything is prone to quick changes that could be last minute changes, but it's a really great idea to make it rely more on the end result rather than on nitpicking on the project. I also have clients that are really picky on small details on competition images. 
whilst nobody will notice those details. It's mostly understanding what your purpose is. You can't have you can have things fast or cheap or good, but you can't have all three. <laughs> I think it boils down to that really. And as long as you know what you want to depict, it doesn't matter. It's an illusion. Like it's an image, it's a painting. Uh, for competitions, it's an abstract form. So everything else is abstract. Your drawings are abstract. I can't see why you should have your images hyper-realistic with every detail resolved because that's not what you're working towards. I was working on a, on a scheme and like we were resolving facades on the last day. I don't think that there's room for us to do anything better with visuals. You just do what you do. Also, if you think about the fact that competition images... I don't think most of the times, but often they're not seen by a jury of architects. So the jury doesn't have the knowledge to go nitpicking on those details. So it's not really necessary all the time. It is the insecurity of the designer, really. So when I was designing, I found myself uh, focusing on the wrong things because these were actually things that were tangible and easier for me to understand. If I was second-guessing my design idea and my main concept, I would resolve everything else to the... like what kind of floor I want, what kind of doors I want, but I wouldn't focus on the, the thing that was important because I had no answer for that. So I would focus on the things that were within my control. It's all about control and sure. understanding. As humans, we are prone to go on things that we have control upon. That's what the architect do. They have control on these things, so they try to shift them until the last minute because they need to feel they have control. And maybe they don't have total control on their own design, especially for competitions. Uh, I think that many offices anyway, especially the smaller ones, the boutique firms, they deal with these kind of projects a lot. And it is difficult, I think, but do you have a good knowledge of how smaller companies work in our industry? Just asking if you ever get in contact with people that work in these kind of companies, friends there. I have friends that work in uh, smaller companies. I have a friend that launched her own like boutique to people visualizer company after working on big firms. But realistically, I was either freelancing when I was in Greece or jumped into the big guns when I was here. So everything I've heard is from people I've met around. So I have friends that work as visualizers for architecture studios or for smaller boutique companies. And some of the people that actually decided to move into the smaller aspect of things they did because they wanted to work on projects that are more intimate, more meaningful. And based upon your experience, what do you think they are the most common shortcomings of these Arcvis studios? I mean, the average Arcvis studio, because I think Cityscape is a bit of a unicorn in the industry. There's not many companies that have this kind of high level and uh, large team. So when it comes to standard Arcvis, let's call it like that, even I don't like the wording, but what are these most common shortcomings in project management? I think I, I haven't worked with them, but what I would expect to be a shortcoming is people that opened their own studio because they they had done their stint in the industry and they wanted to do something themselves. If they don't have enough um, knowledge on how things work and enough exposure to that, they may come across a few issues that they cannot resolve or they may not have enough insight on how to manage people there may be artists that are brilliant artists, but lousy managers. I've come across into people that really don't want to give things to their team. They want to do the bidding and chasing clients and running projects and working on images themselves, which is not sustainable because 
you are risking yourself for burning out. You don't give opportunities to your team to grow. And then you're just having, you're miserable. You have miserable people around you and your outcome is not going to be good enough. Uh, I think that's it really. If you are a boutique student, you want to do, or if you're a person that wants to open a smaller student just to test the, the waters, I would say try to find a colleague of yours that has complementary skills to yours so that you can delegate who is going to do what. And if you can't hire people in the beginning, try to make sure that the person that you're hiring is stronger in managing clients and people. One person is stronger on that thing and another person is stronger in the artistic side of things so that you can cover your bases. And if you can outsource anything, you can really. Like if you can outsource even accounting or anything you can on that aspect, like on the on running the studio, do it because it's going to free you up time till you figure out what you're doing with your project, which is your, your company. So it's basically leaning on your own strength and trying to get someone complementary to your skills. Uh, you know, on my side, I manage a blog, which is pretty big in Italy. It's about architectural communication. And I'm slowly understanding that I'm better at the overview, but I'm not that good at public relation. You know, I'm good at social media, but paradoxically, I'm not good at public relation. But I found somebody that is really good at public relations, at talking to people and involving people. So I'm understanding slowly that it's better to rely on someone that complements your weaknesses, you know. You can't micromanage everything because it's going to drive you mad. Like there's more to life than work. So you can't just invest 24-7 to work on something, even, even if it is a passion. It's not sustainable and I, like you find it slowly with time. I can't put the old nighters I used to do. Staying late for no reason, I, it's not me anymore. And I, it's not only um, a matter of whether you can physically, it's getting that mentality to push through things. It slowly deteriorates with time because you have other things you want to focus on. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is another thing that comes with the wisdom of the age, I guess. I mean, when you are... After a certain age, you, you really want to stop with the, with the old neither life. And I think this applies also to the architects because I see a lot of architects that still do this kind of life even after their 30s. And I'm really worried about the industry for these reasons, you know. And this reflects on us as well, on certain companies that work with this kind of architects and they're led to lead this kind of life as well. So I'm, I really hope there's more awareness on that, you know. There is a very strong, um, a very strong movement in... Um in London these days, talking about how architects are being exploited, like juniors and starting architects are being exploited and they're working the unsustainable hours. So I think that definitely there is awareness and there are people talking about it, which is a very good thing. That's perfect. And I, I really hope it shifts to our industry, which is, you know, tied to architecture. Of course, it's unavoidably tied. And these kind of issues, they unavoidably reflected on Arcvis, I guess. Uh, let, let's go back one step. We're talking about project management and smaller companies. Is there something that smaller companies can do, actually, to improve how they manage the projects they get? I think the, the one thing is people, they because they're smaller, they're trying to just absorb everything because they want to, to build a client base which could be the way forward initially because you're terrified when you don't have enough jobs coming in. And I can definitely relate to that because I used to freelance. I know how it is. 
but in the long term you need to make sure that this is worth it or sustainable so if you're giving things away for free no one is gonna take you seriously so you need to try and have a, a sense of structure and how you do things and how many days things you're expecting things to take and build a bit of a buffer in your finances than actually work on an image 10 days, 12 days in a row without anything just to make a client happy because this will just ensure that you're not going to succeed for long in the business. The other thing I, I would say that is try to find your niche, try to find what you're good at try to find what separates you from the other people because this way you can actually fill in a tiny part of the spectrum of ArcVis. Very interesting and very difficult, I guess. Yeah, it is. It takes a bit of uh, knowing yourself too and it takes a lot of trying and failing and trying again. But once you get there, it's really useful. So, and you know what? There's not only... Viz in ArcVis. There's only not only architecture in ArcVis. There's there are things like people are visualizing boats and airplanes and golf courses. You don't have to isolate yourself on one thing. Just think bigger. But not just branching out in Viz. There's also a lot of side activities that ArcVis artists could undertake. I mean, asset production, for example, or if you have a knack for teaching and for education, also giving lectures, getting a teaching position if you are a senior artist. I think artists should try to branch out and try to think bigger, go over the image and think their profession is a bit more than that. I mean, getting a good image is pretty easy nowadays. An image the client will buy, it's pretty easy to get. Uh, technical advancement has come a long way and we are able to dish out very nice and working images in, in a matter of few hours, I would say. So... Yeah, I think it's very important to branch out, to diversify and to, to find a niche as well. And I think everything that you told me so far was really super interesting and uh, something that I don't get the chance to, to talk enough. And I just want to close with something, uh, with some recommendation for the listeners. So if you were to recommend anything, I don't know if there's any book or resource, but even personal advice, those people that want to try their shot at project management, or management in general in our field, what would you suggest? I think that one, you need to definitely care about people. If you only want to focus on your own progression, which is a fair point, it's not a bad thing, but if you want to do that, you can't be a good manager. If you want to lead a team, you need to believe in your team. So realistically, just try to build on the skill set of empathy and understanding. It doesn't necessarily come from a book. It doesn't necessarily come from one thing, one source. So it's like read newspapers, read articles, um, go to exhibitions, talk to people, try to understand what they're passionate for, try to understand what they what they want to do with their lives, what makes them wake up in the morning, what, what gives them like purpose. There is a book that I read that was very useful for me to understand how I can improve. It is called Radical Candor, which is how you give feedback to people, how you lead people giving feedback. There is uh, Simon Sinek who has these podcasts and videos and talks about leadership in a very, in a way that actually makes sense to me. It's not the best way. It's just a way that resonates with how I think about things. But it's more about, I think it, it sounds corny and I, I hate it, but at the end of the day, it's more about how you feel about people than 
what you learn about people. It's trying to make sure that you give, you are fair, you care for their progression, and when you when you screw up because you will screw up, admit it, apologize, and move on because no one is perfect. That's really food for thought. I guess managing teams, leading teams is not easy. Uh, it's not for everybody, honestly. And screw-ups are bound to happen. People are so different. <laughs> you don't have an, an encyclopedia for all people or personalities. So you have to really empathize a lot with people and understand their place, understand where they're coming from. And I'm Mediterranean. Like I have a very short fuse. I have grown <laughs> a lot. I, I wasn't giving enough chances in the past but if you want to do it you just have to work on yourself really work on understanding what you need to improve on so that you can allow people to grow with you but yeah i, I have been notorious for having a okay <laughs> but i think also another important thing is being assertive uh, in a way that is not aggressive but it's just you know neutral on feedback on delivering opinions to your team uh, which is probably one of the hardest things that a manager has to learn not just with the internal team, also with the client, stating things how they are without sounding bossy or without sounding dismissive. That's super difficult. Yeah, it's not easy, but it's a journey. As long as you can go back to like, in a year's time, go back to where you were and say, oh, I've come a long way from that, then it's good. As long as there's progress, everything should be fine. At the end of the day, we are not surgeons. We're not saving lives. No, yeah, we're not saving lives. And above all, there's no textbook for what we do. Every day is different, yeah. like yours, you know. <laughs> Anna, uh, we are at the end of our conversation, so I just would like to thank you. It's been very interesting. I don't know if, if you had something that you want to leave the listeners with. No, I think I'm done with statements. Uh, it was really nice talking to you. And the only thing I would actually say to people is that if you find yourself in a position where you can assist people grow, just do it. It's <laughs> worth it. Okay. Thank you so much, Anna. Hope to see you in person pretty soon. Maybe at an event. Thanks again and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. If you like this episode, help us growing and improving the show by rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Got a question or is there something you would like me to cover in a future episode? Write me an email at podcast at bigpicturevisual.com. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.